1: Hi, this is Sandy. Today's Money Tales guest is Dave Getch. Dave is a Hollywood comedy writer with a passion for helping people engage with their personal finances. You've likely enjoyed his work if you've watched United States of Al, The Big Bang Theory, or Third Rock from the Sun. Dave knows it's empathy that connects people to the characters he brings to life on the screen. Understanding that money conversations can be hard, Dave shares that we need to employ that same empathy When talking money, so we can build connection and understanding.
2: Hi, this is Cammie. In this episode, Dave shares the money journey of his life, pointing out how he's grown from being someone who is anxious about money to someone who embraces uncertainty. Dave attributes this evolution to understanding what he can control versus what he can't, having a long time horizon to plan for, and partnering with an advisor who understands and has empathy for what Dave's trying to achieve. He didn't stop there. Dave's now sharing the lessons he's learned with his coworkers and other people in his life to encourage them to focus on their personal financial situations. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Dave Gesh. Dave Gesh, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you so much. It's great to have you, and we would like to start asking you to provide a brief overview of your life to date, and sharing a couple pivotal moments.
3: I'm from East Lyme, Connecticut, which is the home of Lyme disease. I, for about the last 25 years, have been a sitcom writer, and I moved out to Los Angeles to do that. I knew one guy who had been a writer on Cheers, and he described this career of being able to sit around in a room full of people who are funnier than your friends and pitch jokes and write a little play and put it on every week. And then your grandparents get to watch it at home. And when it repeats, they send you a green envelope with a check on it. I was like, that sounds great. My first big break was on third rock from the sun, which was in the nineties. And I worked on that for five years and started as a staff writer and then was a executive producer and showrunner. And then I developed pilots for a bunch of years. And then when I saw, the pilot for the Big Bang Theory, I fell in love with it. I was desperate to work on it. And when I met Chuck Lorre and Bill Prady, who created it, I told them I have been trying to make this show for years and failed. And this show's amazing. And I was lucky enough to work on that for 12 years as the longest running multi-camera sitcom ever. We made 279 episodes. And for then I worked on a show called Bob Hart which is now for, the, for a year, which is still on CBS. And now I'm the co-creator and executive producer of the United States of Al, which is on Thursdays at 8.30 on CBS and is a half-hour multi-cam comedy about a Marine who lives with his Afghan interpreter in America, in the garage, which is a premise that I used to have to explain more. But given recent events in Afghanistan, many more people are familiar with this powerful bond between an interpreter, and the soldiers and marines with whom he served.
2: Wow, you've been busy, and that recent project sounds really amazing. But we're going to take you back to East Lyme, yeah. Connecticut. Tell us about let's go. yeah, let's go back there. Tell us about growing up in East Lyme, Connecticut. A little bit about your family, and particularly any of the conversations you were all having around money.
3: Well, I was. So lucky to grow up in the town that I did. We had a great public school system. So good that my dad moved there from the nearby town where he was a public teacher. So he was teaching English in Waterford and then thought we should move over to East Line. Most of the people I went to the school with, seems like their parents made about the same amount of money. There were just a bunch of good, solid middle class jobs. And so there were a couple lawyers and they had, a, they had an above ground pool, but nothing too fancy. Although there was this part, there still is this part of town called Black Point, which is where all the rich kids from Hartford would come and they would summer down there. And I'd work at Dairy Queen. I was one of the townies. And then when I went to boarding school, I got a scholarship to go to Andover and I was still working at Dairy Queen in the summer. And and these kids were like trying to be fancy because they would wear their prep school shirts, but they weren't as good as the school I was going to. So I, that was, that was like a core kind of smug moment that I had as I was handing them their uh, ice cream cones dipped in, in that cherry, hard cherry shell, <laughs> hard chocolate shell, peanut butter parfaits. My parents, my dad still has a teacher's pension. He's that generation that's lucky enough to have had that. Has had it for many years. And so we didn't really have a lot of extra money to save. And Investing wasn't anything that really ever came up. And then, even when I went to college, I went to Yale and my first semester I took macroeconomics and then I took microeconomics and neither of those classes talked at all about investing. Nordhaus is there and Archie Anacopoulos was one of the teachers and like they're famous guys. And I just wish they'd spent a lecture too on FAMA index funds how you can't beat the market. There would have been four or five things that could have profoundly changed how all of us thought about investing, but they never said that. And then a big chunk of the class that graduated went down to Wall Street and they were all selling genius and they were all writing reports and and they totally missed the boat on how to invest. So I don't blame myself for being as clueless as I was for as long as I was
1: about investing. Dave, can you tell us, what was it like to go to Andover? It
3: was incredible. So I'm an anxious, anxious person, which is a key to my anxiety. And I, if I had to describe what has changed in my life in the last 10 to 15 years, it has been going from fearing uncertainty to embracing uncertainty. Like once you see that the alpha is in that uncertainty, in the opportunity, you don't know exactly what it's going to be, but that risk and reward relationship is there. When you can find that balance for me between that, things just shifted. I, I was so anxious in eighth grade that I wasn't going to get into a good college, that I had everybody in my school sign a petition to get Latin in my high school that so would help us with our SAT, <laughs> which is a m- moment that happens in the movie Rushmore. And when I saw the movie Rushmore, I was like, you guys, well, how do, how? nobody would think of that except me, I thought. So then we did get Latin in the high school, but I was too nervous, so I didn't stick around. So then I applied to the only two prep schools I'd ever heard of, which were Andover and Exeter. And and I got a scholarship to go to them, so I arrived at Andover not knowing much and totally wearing the wrong underwear. You know, everybody's wearing boxers, and I went home at Thanksgiving and I was like, "Mom, I need to get some boxers." <laughs> so there were a lot of moments like that. It was an introduction to a kind of wealth I'd never seen. There was a lot of diversity, much more diversity than in my town, more financial diversity scholarship kids and people from all over the place, it seemed like some people kind of had it figured out. But I had a scholarship, but my dad also, he taught, but he also picked up extra shifts driving people to the airport to JFK and stuff. And they worked very hard to make my dreams come true.
1: It sounds like you were exposed to a lot, but you were grounded in who you were financially and where you came from and appreciative of what your parents were doing to Help move you further in life
3: yeah I mean I felt very responsible I wanted to have my success amplify what they did and my parents I I in retrospect I had much more of a safety net than I understood and my parents were really supportive of my crazy dreams and before I decided I thought I was going to be a politician at the start of college and then I thought I was going to be an environmental lawyer. And then right at the end, because I was working for the concert committee, I thought I was going to be a concert promoter.
1: Dave, tell us about becoming a writer. When, when did you meet the writer from Cheers? When did this all come together for you?
3: So my senior year of high school, he was a teaching fellow there. He was about to go off to L.A. He was going to start UCLA Film School. I'd never even heard of film school. I didn't know you could do that. And then he became... In one of those wonderful lucky moments he after a year and a half got hired on cheers and then within a few years like three years later was an executive producer and showrunner 25 years later i've never heard of anyone having a career like that so i i like to say that i mispriced the risk of going into hollywood and i thought it was going to be a lot easier than it was and i'm grateful for that because i don't think i would have ever done it. And I did not understand also that when you get hired as a writer, you might get hired for just eight weeks or 13 weeks. You have no idea when the next job is going to be and what's going to happen. And that just, I was young enough for that not to, I could not process it. I did not understand that you might have a mortgage at some point and you might have monthly bills. And I had been living very, very leanly. I would spent a summer during my environmental lawyer phase. I spent a summer in the sand dunes of El Centro, between El Centro and Yuma, California, living in a ranger station, and they paid us fifty bucks a week to this nonprofit paid us fifty bucks a week to do range studies, which is just walk around the desert and count cows. And I was able to live off thirty-five dollars a week and save fifteen. If I can live off $35 a week, I can make anything work. But it didn't make any sense. Once I started to get some checks and started to get some money, I didn't really have a plan. I went to my accountant to do my taxes one year, and he said, "Uh, well, what kind of income can you expect over the next few years? And I said, well, I could potentially never work again, or I could create a hit show and make $100 million. So we need to budget for somewhere between those two thanks. That was it. And that felt like incapacitating in a way that meant I couldn't plan. And so planning was just about working harder. That felt like the only choice as opposed to, Hey, what if you took a certain percentage and you put it in this pot? And what if when that pot got full, you put it in that bucket and that bucket. And there was just none of that stuff that feels much more intuitive now.
1: I'm curious, Dave, As a writer, do you have agents, like are there people you have to pay when you're getting paid and?
3: Yeah, you know, it's hilarious when you talk to people in the investment world where they fight for every basis point and they talk about how many basis points there are. An agent takes 10% of your income. So that's a thousand basis points, (laughs) right? So look at look at Kim, Kim, she's like, wow, wow. Right? wow. And then a lawyer takes five percent, five hundred basis points. So, and a lawyer will might make it. if you're if you're on a show for twelve years, you make a new contract every three years. If you want to talk about the hourly rate that that lawyer made, it's pretty good. It's pretty pretty good. But you don't have that, you need that agent to kind of help you get in. What's been interesting is that in the last couple of years, because the Writers Guild, all the members of the Writers Guild fired their agents because of this thing involving packaging, which is an interesting other topic, writers are much more active in communicating with each other and getting to each other. And because of LinkedIn and the internet and Twitter, you find funny people in different ways now. And... I started teaching at USC about 12 years ago in this webisodes class. And that was one of the basic points, which is you're going to have your script. That's how you're going to get hired. But how is somebody going to read your script? You want that one minute, two minute funny video, which isn't necessarily a sketch, but is the start of a webisode, has a character, has two people in conflict. feels like a mini sitcom that's going to make somebody say, okay, that person understands character, story. If you're in it, you'll say, okay, that person's funny. And if you directed it, they'll say, wow, that person even kind of knows how to shoot. So there's a big change that's happened in terms of how you break into the business. And on the United States of OWL, in our first season, I think we hired seven, something like we hired seven writers and five of them were not members of the writers guild and didn't have an agent or maybe only one of them had an agent. So we sought them out. We were looking for the, Afghan and veteran voices that we really needed for our show. And we were pretty sure that big agencies weren't representing those writers.
1: Let's go back to when you're, you're getting started in your career. You're not quite certain how long your gigs are going to last. What were you doing as money was coming in? You mentioned you didn't really know about budgeting or, well, at least saving and investing.
3: Yeah.
1: How'd you learn those skills?
3: The hard way, the stupid way, the bad way, I definitely have a feast or famine mentality. So I can live off $50 and say 15. But if there's also like a bunch of money there, then it's like, well, that's great. Let's, let's go do stuff. So there was a year during Sir Rock in the Sun where my girlfriend and I went around the world and we went to. Hawaii and Thailand and we went to Bhutan and that was back in when Bhutan was only letting in 300 people a month and we went to Tuscany and just spent a ton of money going around the world having an incredible time when after the recession ended I had this overall deal and I got this contract and it, it was 2 years and it was a lot of money and I got my first check and it's a check one of 104 and I freaked out because I thought, oh God, I'm never gonna make this much money again. And the truth is, I might never have. It, it was a lot of money. And so I thought, I just gotta hold on to this and I don't, wanna, I don't want it to go away. So I'm actually not gonna cash it. So I just kept putting it under the bed. I just had stacks and stacks and stacks of hundreds of thousands of dollars of money, which I would just I couldn't cash. It was incapacitating because I was af- afraid that it was going to go. And, and I was married at the time and my partner had not grown up with money and I had not grown up with money and we didn't have a good way to talk about it. And there was so much stress around it. And so later when I was writing pilots, there was some like years where I made a lot less money and I had kind of budgeted for this and that, and things got very, tense and stressful and it activated this, this anxiety that i always had and by the time my first child was born the dot-com crisis had come and gone it was like that was 0809 when that happened it felt like the world was ending financially and i was psyched because I didn't have any money in the market, I was like, "Here we go, <laughs> here we go." This is why were the I checks don't still in the drawer. The oh, the checks were spent. There was like okay. no. Help, oh, okay, so okay. yeah, yeah. So I by that time I was just started on Big Bang Theory, and I was doing better, and I was just like, "I've got to figure this out." Like this, this there has to be a better way to think about money, and then there was the New York Times article that talked about the investment answer. And that book changed my life. Gordon Murray was racing to write it as he was fighting cancer. And he was writing it with Dan Goldie, his financial advisor. And I, the book hadn't come out yet, but I saw that New York Times article and I was like, wow, here's a guy on Wall Street who's lived a way that felt reminiscent of a lot of my friends. They'd gone to Wall Street, they'd done that thing, it hadn't made sense. You know, and I remember talking to my friend at lunch years before, who was an analyst. And I was like, Yeah, I specialize in the airline industry, and I just go around, I talk to CEOs of the airline industries, and we get real insights in terms of what stocks are going to go up and down. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And that was my block about investing, which is I understood the first part. Of Fama's market efficient hypothesis intuitively, which is that you can't pick winners consistently. You have to time the market twice. You can't get in and get out and always win, win, win. You're not gonna pick all these Tesla stocks over and over again. I knew that, but my choice was then to not get in. And as much as I was like aware of how you should have index funds and stuff, I didn't have the sense of the time horizon it still felt too up and down.
2: Like you needed to get in and out still.
3: It was too much of a roller coaster. And also being in a very uncertain career in Hollywood, it felt like this was even more uncertainty. So if I'd had a financial advisor, which none of my friends at the time had financial advisors, a financial advisor would have sat me down and said, well, let's talk about your risk tolerance what feels comfortable to you. And at that time, I probably would have said, look, my risk tolerance is pretty low because I don't know what's gonna be happening. I might need this money that I have left over in the next couple of years. And I don't feel like I have enough to put far away. And so a financial advisor would have been able to help me walk through those steps and be like, I get it, I get how you're feeling you would have been able to have a conversation with my partner and where we could have figured it out together. Instead, my accountant who's this entertainment accountant came and I was like, I'm so stressed out. We have some money. doesn't feel like it's enough money. Can we, we want to fix up our house cause this is happening. And then he was just like, yeah, you have a lot of money. You're doing great. Don't worry about it. And like, that wasn't a plan. And it, I hated it. I hated, I hate that guy. I still hate that guy. <laughs> I've not spoken to him in 10 years because he didn't understand what I was going through. He had no empathy. And I think there's so much of people struggling with money is being empathetic and not making them feel bad and understanding like, yeah, this is hard. This pushes buttons. This makes you think about stuff when you were a kid. It makes you think about it. your kids. It, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know. Like, it's, it's all there. And unlike therapy, it's like we're also having an Excel spreadsheet open. So we're going to be talking about money, too. I mean, it is 3D chess.
1: Up on the ceiling.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so what I did is, um, so I read that. So finally that book came out and I read it and there was a list of advisors in the back that I could call. So there was one place in LA and I called them and then I, I sat down with them and they were so sweet because I thought I figured it out. You know, I read the investment answer. Like I have the answer. But then I still said like, okay, guys, here's this cash that's been sitting in my retirement account for the last 10 years of my life. So dumb. If only I compounded that money. But anyway, let's let that go. And say, I like what you're doing. This sounds great. I'll give you guys a year and see how we're doing. So I didn't have the investment answer. I didn't understand this time horizon. I didn't think in decades instead of years. And I think that it all just comes down to how this might be simple to explain. It might be that there are not these big pieces to it. But you're constantly being a barrage of stuff in your face that is counter to that. And it is so hard to keep that in your heart and then have a plan and feel good about it. And I've been lucky enough to be a consultant with Dimensional for a number of years and be able to sit in a room with somebody like David Booth who talks through these things in a way. That allows you to have a series of aha moments where you realize, you know what? It's true that you need a philosophy in investing, just like you need a philosophy in life. But when I realized that, I thought, you know what? I'm not sure I have a philosophy in life. But I kind of think my investment philosophy is life philosophy. Because if your investment philosophy is, Control what you can control. Find the right level of uncertainty that works for you. Understand that you're never going to fully be able to control the future. Then you can set goals, long-term goals, and head towards them. And so when, you know, flash forward to Spring of 2020, and the world stops with the pandemic. The construction of sets for our pilot is supposed to start the following Monday. We're supposed to start shooting in a couple weeks. We're supposed to, this is a dream of mine. Literally, like this is 25 years. I've done pilots and failed, and I got to work on these shows. And this felt like, you know what? There, there's no way this isn't going to happen. Parentheses, unless there's a pandemic that's never (laughs) ever happened. And so it worked out fine. And I was not impacted in a bad way compared to how many other people have been impacted. But the old me without the investment philosophy that would not have been able to say, okay, this is happening. It's outside of my control. What can we do? What happens? What might be this? Just that way of looking at things differently was incredibly powerful and helpful to me. And I'm just, I'm just so grateful for it. And I, so I tell my friends now, like I, I want them to go see a fee-only fiduciary advisor, not because I want them to have a great retirement. That'd be great. But mostly because I want them to feel better now. And I talked to this awesome writer who I worked with a couple of years ago and I turned her on to my advisor and she's such a hard worker and she's just felt like she's, she's just like, this feels like it's too late and I'm in my forties and I'm what I'm going to do, but I'm about to have a job and it's gonna, like, there's going to be this money and I like, look, this is it. You can do it. Trust me. Ask them about having your own defined benefits plan. It's going to be awesome. I'm the biggest fan of defined benefits plans in the world. And she texted me last night and she's like, I just got to a million. I got my first million invested. And she was so happy. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and I'm, I told, and I'm going for three. You said go for three. So I'm going for three. <laughs> and, and Thank um, you.
1: you're a money coach. I love it. Dave. And,
3: yeah. And it was like, so It just made me so happy that she has a plan, you know, like she's able to do this and it's less of a stress right now. And she's obviously in the super, super lucky position of making money. And she's not like most people, 70 or 80 percent of Americans don't have the extra money to invest for the long term. So I'm recognizing all of that. But I was so happy that she had worked so hard for decades to get to where she was in that position of making that money. And I have been the person who has been there and spent it and lost it before. And so it just felt so meaningful to hear that she had gotten there.
2: You are a money coach. I love it. Dave, you told a story. And in your story, you talked about you were married, you were were talking to your partner and, and how you weren't talking about money. And I think you said it was really uncomfortable. Would you be willing to share a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's so uncomfortable we're divorced and money was a big part of that because I was so anxious about it. We dated in college and then we're together. And so we had started in LA with nothing. And then, 30 and bought this house and had a pool and I was wow it was amazing so fun and it felt like we were being responsible but we really needed a third person we really needed a financial advisor who could have kind of threaded through it was just too complicated sometimes when you're sitting down to write a new episode or a movie you're like, what's that first scene? And it's like, well, hold on a second. There's so many layers to this. Let's figure out the characters. Let's just talk about what are some great scenes. Let's talk about where is, we don't know what that first scene is because you have to know so much before you can write that first scene. And so you want to kind of split it up and help parse it out. And I feel like that's where we were. It just both overwhelms us. And And I was a catastrophist and that activated her we should have you know nobody should feel as bad for us or sad for us but everything's fine and we're co-parenting and we sold our house got divorced and she bought a house and i bought a house and i'm living with my new partner and on our first date i told her about the investment answer and she went and bought it and we met on uh Online and uh, and I on a few of those dates with other people I went on I, I talked to them and and I think some of them did get financial advisors off of that too because it was a so weird it's not a great first date talk but I do have a certain passion for it I think that I don't know anybody who has a great relationship with money in their couplehood and I think it is so hard and it remains. The most taboo subject, and I used to say in the writers' room at Big Bang, like, guys, let's just tell each other how much we make, and then we'll go to the studio and be like, hey, you guys can't write The Big Bang Theory unless you pay all of us the same amount or whatever. And it just like that was like froze everybody because you you don't know how much you're in the room with somebody for twelve years, you don't know how much they make. It's so powerful, and I think it's so powerful too that my sense sometimes with people is like there's somebody who's famous for being an achievement a sports or novelist or whatever. And then they get like the big deal. And it's like, so Joe Rogan was a famous podcaster, but then Spotify paid him a hundred million dollars. And like, he's only a hundred million dollars. Like he's the guy who made a hundred million dollars parentheses because of podcasting. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's so, those deals are so powerful in terms of how people perceive you not just like oh you're so successful but more like are you anything more than that and so it's weird to be in a career where in television if you are successful there's just no way you can't make a lot of money the byproduct of being on a successful television show is that you get paid this stuff you can spend it you can you know not have it at the end, but it just is weird because you're in a room making something and there's some people who are making a lot. you know. And I worked on this show where there were actors getting paid a million dollars a week to work three or four days. And I think they totally deserve it because they were so crucial to a property that was making worth billions. And so that was the kind of equity that they were taking from it. There's just no show without any of them. And I think they earned that money, but it's also, they were working with crew guys and other guys and it all worked. It wasn't like it was a problem, but it's weird.
1: Do you feel the dynamics when you're on set and all that money stuff is happening kind of in the background or or maybe not so much in the background?
3: I think people are incredibly good at just focusing on the work and certainly on every show I've worked, it's that thing where the money is the happy byproduct of the of the work, and so Jim Parsons and Johnny Galecki and Kelly Kowal and everybody on that cast showed up to work and do the best they could every single week, and in the end, I think the show ended at the right time because it was for creative reasons. It was just like let's let's go see what else can happen.
1: Dave, I, I really appreciate all that you're sharing with us about your journey, your personal journey, especially, and, and how you've become woke on investing in the importance of having goals and, and saving and putting money toward those goals. I want to ask you about spending, though, because you are living and making money in a town that likes to spend, and people like to Exhibit what they're able to afford, or maybe sometimes what they can't even afford. And so, what's that like? Is there spending pressure on you? Because it's hard to save a lot of money and and amass millions in a retirement plan and also maybe spend.
3: It is. And one of my two kids is in private school. And I think private school is a rip in general. Think about that. LA private schools, 25 grand at least. And then it gets up to thirty-five by high school, and then you're in pre, you do kindergarten, and they do pre-K. So let's just say fourteen times twenty-five. Okay, that's it's so much money. Now remember, you have to make fifty to pay that twenty-five. And is it worth it? What's so great about that? Are you doing it because you want your kid to get into a better college? Because it's not gonna work. You're not gonna get into a better college with that program. Are you doing it because it's the whole person and all that and whatever? Great, but there's probably a public school version of that too. And so they feel like there are these really big choices. And I do think there are pressures about, especially when you're, you know, you have, a, you haven't, you have your first kid and you haven't done school yet. And so you just think, well, I could afford Go to this expensive private school, maybe I should. And I think stuff like that is again where you have to just have lots of empathy because that's the unknown, that's the uncertainty. You don't want to say, like, I denied my kids something when I could have given it to them, but you're also not even sure what you're giving them. I think there can be pressure to have a nice car and have a nice house and do all that stuff. And I have felt that in in different ways. There's a famous story, I don't know whether or not it's true, James Brooks, who did everything from The Simpsons to Mary Tyler Moore, like, you know, one of the legends of comedy, had a writing partner, and early on in their career, he went to his writing partner's new house, and it was this, like, big, fancy house. And the story is that James Brooks was still living in, like, his own little house. And he walks into this big house, and he goes, I'm rich because they get the same (laughs) amount of money. They split the same check. (laughs) It's a great story. Everyone at some point is in this it's zero, or you're going to create a hit show in terms of like you don't know what's going to happen next. And that is awful. It's a terrible, that terrible conundrum to not know what's going to happen next. But as a storyteller, I know that it's terrible when you know what's going to happen is boring. It's a savings account. That's why you put your money in there. So, you know, you can take it out, but amazing stuff is when the surprise happens and how you respond to it in good and bad ways and trying to be sometimes it's too much and it's overwhelming and then you have to make adjustments. And then sometimes it's, it's wonderful. And for me to compare what I, what it felt like in 08, 09, where I had no money in the stock market. And then I was like happy and then sad that it went up. And I it was just like, I had all these stupid emotions to the pandemic where I didn't make any changes. I mean, in terms of my investment accounts, I I made all these changes in terms of my life and buying wipes. And I was lucky enough to be able to work from home and lots of other things. But the investment piece didn't change. And that's, you know that's a percentage of stress sometimes a big piece of percentage sometimes a lower piece of strength but it's still a lot and knowing that that was just taken care of gave me like great great comfort and then to watch it kind of come back the way it did is like guys come on this is the way to do it and my friend i was in a writer's room a couple years ago when tesla was going nuts And he owned four stocks. He owned Apple and Tesla and Netflix and some weird thing. Dude's doing great. And I was and his returns are so huge. And he's a stress case because he's gotta find the next one. He's gotta figure out what to sell, what to do, whatever. And he's like, Do you own Tesla? And I was like, I own everything. The one thing I do sometimes say in writers' rooms is can I give you the advice that I wish somebody had told me when I first started working and was getting a job? And just say, save 25% of it whenever you get a residual, put it away, get a plan, have your retirement account going, make your contributions, but also think about your investments. I think one of the challenges for young people today, smart young people, is they're like, what is going to be around in 50 years? And I think we need to have a good answer for that because right now as we're talking, Northern California is on fire. New York City is underwater. The situation in Afghanistan is heartbreaking. There's still tons of Syrian refugees. New Orleans has had this giant hurricane. It's illegal to have an abortion in Texas. Like The world feels like it is ending, what's going to be there in 50 years? And I think the answer is that when you invest in a broad portfolio like that, you're investing in human ingenuity. You're investing in the people to figure a way out of this. And we have, like we, we ended famine in the 20th century, right? That's unbelievable that created some other problems, like there's more type two diabetes now, but I, that is another problem that a, that a company is going to solve. And when companies solve problems, they do it using the capital, the public markets where they need to raise capital to do this.
2: I think what you said is really interesting. When I look at the world today, it is really it's very scary. I think you're almost likening to the stock market when you look at today or one moment or one stock. It can be very scary. Movements can be very scary. If you believe in our ingenuity, you will see if you pull back, we've made great progress. I think you're giving your people that you work with is a tremendous gift that a lot of people aren't comfortable having these conversations to help them think, more broadly go get help you know here's a book for you to read be smart and I just I just think it's a tremendous gift
3: and thank you so much it's so boring to a lot of people but I am really passionate about it because I see how it can make a difference in people's lives and you don't design your own house you don't put plumbing in your own house you don't Build a retaining wall yourself. You know, why would you think that you should invest yourself? And not every financial advisor is the right person, and somebody's trying to time the market and do that stuff is not I would not recommend that. But there is a way to look at this thing scientifically. There is a way to understand the difference between models and reality. And you can have a plan which is not as good as you're going to want it to be because you're never going to have that certainty. And David Booth was talking about this other day. He was like, look, <clears throat> there's some people who have so much money that they don't have to invest because they're never going to spend it. They put in T-bills and that's totally fine. They don't have the uncertainty and risk in that way. But everybody else can't afford to not do this. Because you need to take this money and leverage it into something for later. Because you, if you aren't gonna have enough money when you're retiring or for school or the things you wanna do, you wanna take that $1,000 when you're 25 and forget about it for 40 years.
2: May I ask one question to your expertise as a storyteller? If money were a television show, what kind would it be?
3: Well, it's an interesting question because the golden rule in comedy is you don't talk about money. It's too stressful. Like if you want to tell a story and you say that dress costs a hundred bucks to some people in the audience, that's an impossibly large number. To some people in the audience, it's nothing. So you, people are going to have these visceral reactions to it. So how do you talk about money in stories and all this stuff is dramatic I think of hopefully comedy is just drama with jokes. So that if there's good storytelling and so which makes drama so much easier to write than comedy. That's all comedy writers like to point that out, but <laughs> this is the hardest part of writing. And the trick is to find I want to find ways to do it with comedy, but it is hard because of all the pressure people have. It's so built up and it's so intense. So it's definitely a drama. You see, succession, right? Like, that's a really good show because of how these, how can a family get so negatively impacted by money and power? Uh, it, it's like a
1: cautionary tale. Will you tell us what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I am going to have
3: a money conversation with my eight-year-old daughter who said recently she could live for the rest of her life on white rice and she is, doesn't need a big house, which is totally fine. And she described exactly my feast or famine dynamic that I grew up in. She was totally in that salmon zone. So my conversation, which will probably take I'll do for the next twenty years, is how can we get to the middle? How can we how can we be happy in the middle? And it's it's something I still
1: struggle with. It's so hard. Dave, good luck with all those conversations. It's they're important you. ones, and it's good that you have the awareness to to help guide your daughter. And thank you for this fantastic conversation. You've really been insightful. And we really appreciate all that you've shared. And we hope there's a way in the future that you find to make writing about money funny. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> thanks so much, Dave.
1: Thank
3: you guys. And thanks for what you do. I'm a huge fan of advisors and the hard, hard work that it is.
2: Zanny. Tell me, what was your biggest takeaway from this eye-opening conversation with Dave Gash?
1: I appreciated what Dave had to say about studying at Yale and how he was learning from name brand professors, but no one was teaching him about investing. And that's true not only at Yale, but most other universities. There's no general classes in personal finance or investments and that's such a miss in our society this should be part of the curriculum of all schools
2: i appreciated that he was being taught macroeconomics microeconomics but no basic finance and honestly we were just talking my husband and i about this how some of the basics in life are not taught i appreciate dave bringing this to life that you know he experienced it in his own Education. What's one of your
1: top takeaways from this conversation?
2: When Dave started talking about having empathy for yourself in these conversations and acknowledging that money conversations are hard and it's really easy to avoid them. But if you have empathy about someone's situation, their feelings, even around misunderstandings. (laughs) It just makes for everyone to have a more open approach to the conversation. And he he talked about in his marriage that they really needed a financial advisor. He used a great analogy. You know, we don't put the plumbing in our own house. We, We get someone to do this stuff. We buy the house. It's made. And Sandy, I'm always marveling at why do we think we have to do it all ourselves when it comes to financial matters? My last comment is Dave said he doesn't know anyone who has a great relationship with money in their couplehood. And I think that that was an interesting comment. We've heard from some guests who do, which is fantastic, but I think there's a lot of room for work and growth and improvement and we're never done. And maybe that's at the root of Dave's comment there.
1: I thought that was great that he brought those observations up as well. So thank you for highlighting them. One of the other things that Dave said that stuck with me was his story of how he learned to embrace uncertainty. Well, I love what he said when he was talking about sitcoms would be boring if you knew what was going to happen in the end. That same lesson applies to life. Dave was giving everybody permission to To realize we're human, we're trying to work this out. We can only control what we can control. We shouldn't sweat or feel bad about the stuff we can't control. Life is an adventure. Mm. Money is a resource that's part of that adventure.
2: Let's have empathy and let's laugh along the way. Sandy, it was great to talk to Dave. It's a different world from what I'm in, someone who's in Hollywood, and his journey from being a townie and at Dairy Queen to being a really successful writer, and all the, all the learning along the way about money was, was really fantastic of him to share.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that too. It, he's a great storyteller that came through in our conversation for sure. And thank you, Dave, again, for being a guest on Money Tales and thank you to our listeners for listening to the stories each week.
2: We hope you share it with your friends. And you can send us messages via email at podcasts at Asperient.com. Thanks again for joining.
0: You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Kami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.